a new vaccine site, a story that went viral, a new pro sports team coming to town, and the confirmation of the long-awaited second location of a certain popular grocery chain. Phew, this week definitely kept us busy here in the Times Union newsroom. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. Governor Cuomo is getting it from all sides, and it's starting to show. We'll hear from Nexium whistleblowers Sarah Edmondson and Anthony Nippy Ames. We believe in turning a negative into a positive, and the silver lining is, is that we are now unofficial experts in the field, and we want to help people. And we'll hear the stories of local veterans of World War II's Battle of Iwo Jima. I mean, we had other groups of veterans, and occasionally they might have similar stories. These guys shared the same story. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Okay, let's start with a look at what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. We are here once again with Times Union editor Casey Seiler. We're going to go over the top headlines this week, of which there are many. Uh, let's start with what's going on with Governor Andrew Cuomo right now. He seems to have a lot on his plate. The health commissioner, Howard Zucker, testified at a joint legislative budget hearing today on the nursing home issues. There's allegations of sexual harassment by a former aide. His approval rating is tanking. What's going on here? Yeah, a lot on his plate is right, and none of it is very appetizing. We are now about two weeks into the worst of the controversy over the administration's stonewalling, which went on for months over the the true tally of deaths of nursing home residents. That, as you noted, was the main issue in Health Commissioner Howard Zucker's obligatory budget season appearance before a joint legislative hearing on Thursday. I cannot speak of COVID-19 without turning to the nursing homes. Yes, there were deaths. Too many. Yes, nursing home residents were and remain among the most vulnerable. And yes, there have been questions. This appearance had been pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And finally, it was pushed back just by a couple of hours because Zucker said he couldn't be there at the you know, the the initial 9.30 start date. So when lawmakers finally did get a chance to talk to him, th- they made it very clear that they were none too pleased with the way that the health department and the Cuomo administration had, um, had withheld this information from them. This is, of course, also now the subject of, of federal inquiry out of the, um, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn and um, the FBI. Now, as I said, that's been going on for two weeks. But on top of that, the governor is now facing the blowback from a personal essay that was published on Medium by a former uh, state development official named Lindsey Boylan, who has also been a congressional candidate. Boylan last month said in a series of tweets that the governor had sexually harassed her And then on Wednesday, she posted on Medium a personal essay in which she said, among other episodes, that the governor 
during a plane ride that she took with him, uh, said, uh, hey, uh, maybe we ought to play strip poker. And that in his office, he uh, in his New York City office, that is, he gave her a kiss that obviously was was not invited and was not appreciated. Now, needless to say, this was more fodder for the governor's enemies who had been circling. But even among his allies, there were statements saying that this was something that has to be investigated. And the problem is that the state doesn't really near to hand have an entity that is equipped to investigate this kind of accusation and is independent enough from the governor to do so with the possible exception of the attorney general's office. The governor has um, has roundly denied these allegations. Aides to the governor have come forward and said that while the governor is a, a taskmaster and a hard charger and demands excellence and all the other things you say about mean bosses sometimes, um, that this does not comport with their experience of working with him. But Governor Cuomo is getting it from all sides, and it's starting to show in his polling. There was a Marist poll that came out earlier this week that showed that not enough voters are looking forward to electing him to a fourth term. Well, that is a lot of news coming out of the Capitol there. And uh, to follow what we're covering, visit our Capitol Confidential blog at timesunion.com or check out our Capcom podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, also in Albany and also sort of on the state lines of the state, uh, a new mass vaccination site that uh, the governor announced recently is now taking appointments at the, at the armory in Albany. Can you talk more about what that will be and what residents can expect? Yeah, it's one of a half dozen, you know, mass vaccination sites like this that have been established around the state just in recent weeks. This one is uh, is supposed to open up next week, although I think some of the appointments are now for the following week after that. It's going to be an operation well into April. And if you live in certain zip codes, you can go and uh, sign up right now for one of these slots. These centers are really meant to to fight something we've spoken about before, Jess, which is the problem of vaccine hesitancy and the lack of easy access, um, especially in communities of color, to healthcare services that uh, that, among other things, allow people to get the uh, the COVID vaccines. All right. Well, again, you can go to timesunion.com to learn more about that. Another story that we've been following for a long time now, uh, the saga of my payroll HR head, Michael Mann, his sentencing has been delayed. Can you talk about what happened there this week? Yeah, this is the 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 executive or pseudo executive at the center of a $100 million bank fraud scheme that came to light a year and a half ago when the collapse of his payroll company sent shockwaves really out throughout the country where people found their bank accounts drawn down. They were dropped into sort of temporary penury. It was um, big trouble and it was very quickly exposed to be the sort of collapse of this house of cards, including Michael Mann's company, My Payroll HR. Now, he pleaded guilty um, back in August to 12 felonies, um, bank fraud, wire fraud, identity theft, filing false tax returns, and so on. He, it is possible that he could, could be sentenced to up to three decades in federal prison and having to repay $101 million. Now, 
I'm almost positive that he doesn't have $101 million. And it's, it's almost certain that he won't be doing three decades in federal prison, but he is going in for a significant amount of time. Now, onto a story that went a little bit viral for us. Uh, the tale of a bad landlord. Do you want to do you want to explain that one to us? Yes, an allegedly uh, very bad landlord who, um, uh, according to Brendan Lyon's story, is alleged to have essentially kidnapped two tenants in his uh, a, a residence that he owned in the south end of Albany, um, put pillowcases over their head. Uh, it is alleged that a firearm was involved and potentially two other people. They uh, initially went to a motel and then uh, finally were driven down to Ghent, you know, a rural community just south of, uh, of Albany and uh, not released, but basically put out of the car, as it were, in a fairly remote cemetery. One of these two individuals unnamed in our story, was able to get free of the zip ties that were allegedly shackling them and sought help. But the uh, landlord is now facing charges of kidnapping and uh, more. Now, we here in the Capital Region are going to have a new sports team to root for. Who's that going to be? National Lacrosse League uh, lacrosse play, which is going to be pretty cool. It's going to be at the Times Union Center. The team is the New England Black Wolves, which is a National Lacrosse League uh, franchise that currently plays at Mohegan Sun, the casino in Connecticut. Team's being sold. It's going to relocate to Albany. It just got approved by the league. The sale did last week, but it's pretty cool if you if you love lacrosse. And it's a return to many moons ago when the Albany Attack, which was also an NLL franchise, played at the Times Union Center. That was just for three years from 2000 to 2003, and then they shoved off to sunny San Jose, California. So it, it's great to even think about going to see uh, an organized uh, athletic competition uh, with thousands of other people. So let's just all hold on to that happy thought. Indeed, indeed. And I haven't watched much lacrosse, but I, I have heard that it is a very high energy, fast paced game that uh, is just full of excitement. So I am looking forward to that myself. I love throwing a lacrosse ball back and forth, but mm -hmm. I actually practiced one time in college and it ran me ragged. Wow. <laughs> and speaking of things to look forward to, news just broke this week that confirms what we had been reporting might happen, which is that the region's going to get a new Trader Joe's supermarket. Do you want to tell us the details? Coming to Half Moon, this is something that has been floated and expected for a while. Um, we uh, first reported that it was expected to be imminent back in August, but the news breaking on Thursday, um, first reported by the Albany Business Review, uh, God bless them, uh, that it is in fact coming to Half Moon, the second in the region. The first, of course, is kind of toward the southern end of Wolf Road, close by Colony Center. Needless to say, among people who love Trader Joe's, this is like uh, the mothership landing at Devil's Tower. It's a big deal. Already, there are hot discussions online about whether or not there's going to be enough parking. The parking area at the Wolf Road store is seen by some as being insufficient, but uh, this one apparently will have, uh, will have a little bit more. It is, having been there, a small parking lot, but a lot of people, as you said, are very excited. 
Jess, what is your favorite Trader Joe's delicacy? Oh boy, that is so hard to say. My favorite snack are the cheese crunchies, the spicy cheese crunchies. I love those. They sell a good uh, samosa, the delicious Indian appetizer. Yes, I have had that as well. It's delicious. All right. Well, thank you, Casey, for joining us. Uh, We are going to hear more from you later in this podcast. We're going to hear you talk to Nexium whistleblower Sarah Edmondson and her husband, Anthony Nippy Ames. That is coming up later in the podcast, but I will bid you adieu right now. Thanks. In 2017, Sarah Edmondson and her husband, Anthony Nippy Ames, were among the former insiders who outed Keith Raniere's master-slave sex cult within the organization known as Nexium. Their actions sparked an investigation that ultimately led to the conviction and sentencing of Raniere, as well as Seagram's heiress, Claire Bronfman. Casey Seiler and criminal justice reporter Rob Gavin sat down with Edmondson and Ames on a recent episode of our sister podcast, Nexium on Trial, to talk about their new podcast and where they are now that Ranieri is imprisoned for life. Uh, we're on a podcast and you are about to have your own podcast and it's, it's got a very, very memorable name. It's called A Little Bit Culty. What can you tell us about this? And I am eager to listen. Well, you know, apparently we're just not done talking about this. And uh, we were actually approached by some former members of a fundamentalist church group who make podcasts. And they said, you know, you should do one. And we were like, oh, man, everyone's got a podcast these days. And then they were like, well, you know, podcasts are kind of like websites these days. And people, it's it's become more niche. And we think that people have, have more to, to ask. And we... It's true, like even though The Vow really covered everything and my book as well, um, people still have questions and we still feel, and we have always felt that uh, this was obviously a really terrible thing that happened, but it also, we, we believe in turning a negative into a positive and the silver lining is, is that we are now unofficial experts in the field and we wanna help people. We were, we were trying to help people before, obviously we bet on the wrong course with Nexium, and we were, were conned there with the, uh, the, the falsehood of, of personal growth, but personal growth, yeah, it was gross actually. Um, and we still want to help people. So now this is our way of, of educating and healing and all, all the things from, you know, how to spot the red flags and the narcissism to how to get out, how to help family members. We just, we just want to, we just want to keep, keep talking about this and, and share our nuggets of wisdom. You know, we had, I'd been in the um, journey of just saying no to everything. I kind of wanted this whole thing to end. And people kept having questions for us and there was a demand for it. Frankly, this thing was over for me kind of when the convictions happened in June of 19. And then um, the vow came out and kind of had to relive it a little bit. And I was kind of ready to put it to bed. And I was shocked at the outpouring. I was shocked at the the support and really just the the overall interest in it um, past the salacious aspect of it. And then, we polled some people um, and the response was overwhelming because they had more questions and, and it didn't stop. And then finally, you know, the people that approached us were like, we can put this in your room, in your bedroom during COVID. And I was like, that's, not bedroom, that li- is living room, not bedroom. Yeah. Living room. Sorry. <laughs> That'd be awkward. Um, and, and they're literally going to bring it to us. And, you know, I'm having conversations with a lot of friends and family about it anyway. I figured why not, you know, put it on a platform where people can uh, ha- turn our story into some wisdom. 
Obviously, Keith Ranieri is serving 120 years in prison. He recently was moved to Tucson, Arizona. Any thoughts about that, that he is now he is now away? Just your in general thoughts. You understand the conversations that have happened over the last three or four years and abuses and pain that have happened over the last you know, 20 plus 30 are an effect of one person, really, and a, and a myth of one person. And that person and that myth is locked away where it can't hurt anyone else anymore. And I feel proud. I feel, um, you know, relieved um, that we have a system in place. Um, and I participated in, in facilitating um, him being taken and out of society in the way that it did. One of the things I bet large on when this thing happened was once the cards were on the table, and someone, the jury of the peers, was going to see what was going on. They were going to see this guy for who he really was. And we, I didn't know how in the right we were because we didn't know all the abuses. All that stuff started coming out in the trial. And that, that actually was one of the more traumatizing things to think that this stuff was going on right underneath our noses the whole time. But if, it, if this was a card game or a sports game, it was a blowout. They didn't even get a punch off. Like, you know, it wasn't even, it wasn't even close. You know, uh, we were, we were playing with a full house and they had Jack high and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't remotely close, you know, once the cards are on the table. Um, so that was a relief. And to the, the swiftness in which he was taken out of society was pretty impressive. I mean, when, when this thing happened, I thought, oh my God, this is going to be the next five to 10 years of my life. And the fact that he was arrested in March of 18 and under a year and he was in jail to me is like, you can say a lot of things are being said about the FBI and how they work, but they got this one right. When you asked if we wanted to talk about this, I remember that Keith used to say, um, and he never responded to any of the media that you guys put out because he would say, um, never wrestle with a pig. Cause if you wrestle with a pig, you both get dirty, but the pig likes it in this case you know, Times Union's the pig, right? So I, I think that was part of me, like, I'm not going to dignify their accusations with a response. I'm like, fuck that. Excuse my language. That, that's, that's Keith talking. I'm going to respond because I have an opinion about this and you can take it or leave it. Um, and the other thought I wanted just to wrap up with is that one of the things that planted a seed for me, and I wrote about this moment in my book, is that a, a couple months or maybe a year before I left, a, a friend of mine sat down with me um, uh, her husband, because he was concerned about her participating in the program. And he basically showed me all the articles. And I was just like, Pepe, this is like, it's just a smear campaign. Like everything I've been taught to say is all smear campaigns, all smear campaign. And he's like, sir, do you understand how the media works? Like they can't fabricate everything. Like what if even 10% of this is true? And I, that was, it, I didn't wake up then, but it planted a seed for me to go, huh? Right. Okay. So like the, all the things that have been written about him, what if even 10% of that was true? Well, how, what would that mean to me? Um, I was still too indoctrinated to at that point, but I actually have a question for, for you that I'm hoping that you can answer. And keeping in mind that it, when we were in, we'd been told that the you know, Times Union was doing all this smear campaign and they were so unethical and blah, blah, blah. And at one point I remember Claire Bronfman coming into a meeting. I don't think you were there, Nippy, and saying, they were, she was so relieved because she had on camera, I, I don't know if it was the editor or somebody saying and admitting that they made it all up to- Oh my God. To take them to, basically she'd gone in to interview somebody and they had a, somebody on their deathbed maybe. 
like somebody who is dying of cancer or something? Does this sound familiar? Like an, a high up person at the Times Union? No. No? <laughs> this is a new okay, one. Okay, no, okay, all right. one on us. Okay, so forgive me because I, I don't remember exactly, but I remember her saying that she'd gone in with Mark Vicente, maybe Mark would have more on this, filmed him admitting on his deathbed that it was all untrue and it was all a smear campaign. And this, she was so happy because this was going to vindicate us and prove that, that, that we were under attack, blah, blah, blah. Then later, the footage was lost. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the footage was lost. And, but, I, but I remember like every time she'd, she'd always be late for whatever we're doing, she'd be talking to lawyers and having meetings and fighting against whatever was happening. And every now and then she kind of like lets, like it was always very top secret, but that was something she shared with, like, I don't know if it was me or us, it was a small group. Yeah, that's that's like saying, well, oh yeah, I you know I did once own the Holy Grail, but uh, <laughs> I lost it, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and now no, and now the person died. Was there was there somebody that died that was a high up person, like an editor that wasn't? I'm you? trying to picture being on your deathbed and you're like, oh, I love my I mean, relatives, I love you. Hey, by the way, we brought down <laughs> Keith Raniere unnecessarily. Yes, I really, I, I really appreciate a representative of the organization that we've been reporting on so assiduously walking by my deathbed to interview me. No, I, I, you've I've, been an editor yeah. for a while, right? I've been at the paper for twenty years, Rob. For, oh, for almost fifteen. I've been there fifteen years. Yeah, I went back to uh, when Where does Dennis Bisco was uh, was covering it. I'm just trying to think. I don't know anybody who passed away who would have. You know, I know. There was a time years ago where Claire Bronfman came in and meet with, I think she met with George. George Hurst, our, uh, our publisher, yeah. and Greg Smith as well. And But that meeting very quickly devolved into Keith dropping nostrums and, uh, you know, running, running his rap. And George very quickly sort of recognized that this was not going to be very beneficial. But, I mean, Sarah, the truth of the matter is, is that the Times Union's reporting on Nexium, rather than anybody, you know, revealing in some stunning way that we had made it all up, has stood up to the, you know, to the test of time. All of those stories were lawyered to a fairly well mm -hmm. by very good attorneys, and there's been nothing, including in the in the federal attention that's been paid to this, that has knocked down any of the reporting in those stories, you know? Oh no, we, we know that. Yeah, all oh, right, but I, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, you, you would think if, if there was some kind of deathbed confessional, right. um, <laughs> it would have come out by now. You can hear more of this conversation on our sister podcast, Nexium on Trial, available wherever you listen to podcasts. After the break, we'll hear the stories of local veterans of the Battle of Iwo Jima. I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.
Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Last week marked the 76th anniversary of the Battle of Iwo Jima, a brutal, bloody fight that effectively ended the war in the Pacific in 1945. It's estimated that more than 20,000 Japanese soldiers died, along with 7,000 U.S. Marines. After five weeks of fighting, the Americans ultimately triumphed, and that moment was marked by the now iconic photo of six U.S. Marines raising the American flag atop the island's Mount Suribachi. Before the COVID-19 pandemic began, a small group of capital region veterans of Iwo Jima would gather regularly at a cafe in Altamont. They'd swap stories of their time in the service and in the battle. Now in their mid-90s, the group has dwindled to three surviving members. Despite the pandemic, though, as well as the closing of the cafe, this year they still got together, albeit on the phone, to commemorate the fight. Reporter Pete Mola sat in on that conversation, and I talked to him about it. Now tell me about some of these veterans. You said they were mostly Marines. Tell me who you talked to and, and what they're like. There's, unfortunately, you know, these guys are now in their mid-90s, and, you know, time is taking its toll, and several have died just in the past year. Amongst the uh, people I spoke with was um, a gentleman named Nils Mockler, uh, Altamont resident, born in Brooklyn, spent you know his adult life here in the capital region. You know he was a Marine who worked as a combat intelligence scout. And then there was also a gentleman named Ambrose Cowboy Anderson, and he worked as a essentially hauling ammunition. So these two veterans both uh, were on completely opposite sides of the spectrum when it came to participating in this iconic battle. They didn't know each other while they were in the battle? They did not know each other. And uh, on one hand, Ambrose, you know, he's black. And at the time, the U.S. military was uh, in the process of uh, desegregation. Uh, he was a member of the, the Montfort Point Marines. He, he was one of the first black Marines ever when he was sent over to Iwo Jima. And at the time, uh, unfortunately, Black Marines were only relegated to hauling ammunition and these other kind of menial tasks. That was my going into the Marine Corps, getting to Washington and had to go to the back of the train. That started my life with uh, what uh, racial discrimination was all about. At the other side, you had Nils Mockler, uh, who was you know in on all the intelligence. Uh, so he kind of talked about his experience where he was privy to the information coming out at the highest level of, you know, the battle was only supposed to be a few days. However, it stretched on and on and on. And it was just fascinating connecting with these two gentlemen who, again, were at very different vantage points uh, 76 years ago and offered really kind of astute observations, not only uh, from the historical perspective, but just kind of the daily drudgery on the ground. And so these two guys had him on the phone, and it was uh, amazing because it was like a trip back in time where they were laughing and chuckling with each other, and, you know, kind of bringing a little bit of levity into what was uh, obviously a life-changing encounter for both of them. Cowboy, or Ambrose, <laughs> Cowboy as he was known, I love it. You talked a little bit about his experience specifically during the battle where you said he his unit was relegated to hauling ammunition, but there was one point at which they had to just 
drop that and fight, right? Can you talk about that experience that he described? Yeah, so Ambrose uh, was in a convoy heading to the South Pacific uh, to Iwo Jima, and his convoy was attacked by Japanese fighter pilots known as the Kamikaze. So instinct kicked in, and he just immediately started feeding ammunition, chains of, of ammunition to a white, one of his white, you know, colleagues in the military. And as he explained, he just didn't think about it. He just did it. You know, he did experience discrimination, never from his fellow Marines. But, you know, at the time, the military in general was still, you know, you could use the word racist. Sure. Because he, he discussed his experiences, both serving overseas, facing uh, prejudice and discrimination. They were still segregated. So when he, even when he was training, he you know, had black drill sergeants, right, and black uh, commanding officers, and everything was just separate. And well into his time, even after the battle was over and he was still enlisted, there was still discrimination that he faced. Despite these societal roadblocks and where the country was at race at the time, you know, he he was always very quick to say that uh, Marines stuck together. And whether you're white, black, or another person of color, you're a Marine. That's that's all that matters. And he also described some of the horrific things that he witnessed during the battle, too, like the carnage. Sure. It's just stuff that we can't even imagine or, you know, the only way we can is by seeing it in movies these days. Yeah. Like both of these gentlemen, you know, recalled the carnage that they saw. Cowboy described after this pilots flew overhead bodies bobbing in the water like driftwood and others were prone in a chair. Mr. Mockler described, you know, a bomb going off over like a mass grave and just blowing everything back up to the surface. And Oh, that's horrific. It's, it is horrific. And it's just part of, you know, what they were, you know, these, at the time they were teenagers and they just answered their nation's call to, uh, to service as Mr. Mockler put it, his only regret is he couldn't do more. Right. So they're both extremely, both extremely humble. And it's, it was a real pleasure getting these two together to uh, to discuss their experiences. Wow. You mentioned before, both of them are in their 90s, their mid 90s. I think uh, Ambrose Cowboy Anderson is 95. (laughs) How are they sort of viewing this period in their lives? I mean, they're, they're getting up there. There's no denying that. And I think you would agree that they would admit that. But you know, what's next for them? Well, I spoke with uh, with Mr. Mockler, and he was actually on his way out the door to get his vaccine shot. Oh, that's uh, wonderful. So it is wonderful. <laughs> so, I mean, he was literally like, just, you know, I'm talking to you now, but I, you know, I'm going to go get my vaccine. He's, when we, when we spoke, he was in Westchester. He's on route to, to Florida, where I hope he's enjoying a, a lovely, uh, warm weather. And, you know, both him and Cowboy were extremely candid and um, on the ticking clock uh, where uh, Niles said that he, when he was back on the Island for the 50th anniversary, he gathered up some soil, which he would incorporate into his final plans. And Oh, wow. Cowboy, you know, very funny guy and very jocular and seems just like a real great person. They, you know, just fell into like natural rhythm of conversation. What, you know, you, I guess, would expect to hear at the Homefront Cafe, where they were just talking about 
who was your commanding officer? I, I had a guy like this. And how far did you make it up Mount Suribachi, which is the mountain of war that iconic photo was taken? You know, what were you given for your rations? And they, they kind of faded into like a moment of silence. You know, they said, well, it'd be good to get together soon. It'd be good to get together next year, you know, if, if, if we live that long, right? Lucky you that you got to kind of hear that firsthand. That's amazing. My grandfather refused to talk about the war. He'd clearly seen some, some bad stuff, and he would never talk about it. He would just say, we did what we had to do, and it wasn't pretty, damn it. That's all we ever got out of him. Yeah, Mark Yingling, who's the uh, Patriot Guard, one of the gentlemen who kind of corrals all these guys together, said the same thing. He said, back when these guys got returned to the United States after their service, you know, this is like the, the culture of the 50s. It was like the madman type. You just like are a strong, stoic man, and you don't talk about these things. And you just went on to work, and you went on to raise your family. To be able to spend time with with other Marines that experienced the same horrific experience was just so special. I mean, we had other groups of veterans, and occasionally they might have similar stories. These guys shared the same story. Part of the goal of getting these gentlemen together at the Homefront Cafe was to, you know, give them a chance to be with their colleagues, right? And these people that can only kind of identify with if you had been through the heat of battle together. And it was never an attempt to just push everyone together and say, talk about your experiences, talk, you know, have catharsis, but naturally just being around each other, it led to that kind of level of catharsis and these stories being them just talking about it themselves because they finally felt comfortable. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week, as always, with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Albany Times Union. It's produced and edited by myself, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom.